Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm Chris Case. On several previous episodes of Fast Talk, we've discussed the structural and biochemical changes that take place through the process of adaptation, through training. Today, we're going to address one of the most important and interesting structural changes, something called exercise-induced cardiac remodeling. As you train, your heart changes. This remodeling includes things like increases in chamber volume and muscle wall hypertrophy. Of course, these changes don't happen after one set of intervals. So today we'll discuss how long they take and how quickly they are lost if you detrain or stop training because of something like an injury. We'll also explore both the performance changes and health consequences, if any, of this remodeling. We're excited to be joined today by two leading experts in this area of research and clinical practice, Dr. Bradley Pettick and Dr. Timothy Churchill. Dr. Pettick is a cardiology fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital and one of the authors of the journal article entitled Cardiac Effects of Detraining in Athletes, a Narrative Review that you'll hear us refer to in the show. And Dr. Churchill is a cardiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital as well and an instructor at Harvard Medical School. He is a member of that hospital's cardiovascular performance program, where he studies cardiovascular adaptations to exercise as they apply to health, disease, and human performance. The perfect guest for this episode. We'll also hear from coaches Julie Young and Jared Berg to get their understanding of how cardiac remodeling affects athletes of all abilities. Let's make you fast. In all of sports, nutrition is one of the most confusing and controversial topics. That's because everyone has an opinion, and it's hard to tell fact from fat. Plus, what works for one person may not work for you. Now Fast Talk Laboratories is shedding some light on the science of sports nutrition. In our new sports nutrition pathway, we take a deep dive into the science of practice of sports nutrition to help you find what works for you. This pathway features experts like Dr. Asker Eukendrup, Dr. Brian Carson, Dr. Tim Noakes, Dr. John Hawley, Julie Young, and Ryan Kohler. They create a science-based framework that will show you how to think about sports nutrition in a new way. Our sports nutrition pathway is the only guide you need to this complex topic. See more at fasttalklabs.com pathways. Welcome to Fast Talk today, guys. Dr. Churchill, Dr. Pedic, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. We've been looking forward to this conversation about cardiac remodeling for, for a while now. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's a real pleasure having you on the show. I've been reading some of your research, and it's, it's pretty exciting stuff, in my opinion. I would assume they share that opinion. Yeah, no, so we, we appreciate that. It obviously you know, that takes up a big part of our life, and we think it's we're both in this area because we think it's meaningful for a population that both that often gets kind of underserved by the medical establishment and paradoxically. And so we both feel very strongly about work in this area. So we're glad to hear that at least someone is reading it. Oh, no, I, I have quite enjoyed it. And, you know, Chris was, as you know, I mentioned this to you, Chris was one of the authors of the, the Haywire Heart, which was really trying to get at some of the, the cardiac conditions that you see in endurance athletes, particularly AFib. Yeah, that was much more about uh, arrhythmias and some of the electrical problems you see. But um, I think as athletes continue to push themselves later into life in these generations that are doing so now, we're starting to see a lot of things that we 
never did before in some ways. I, I hope that that's not a misstatement. That's definitely a, a very true statement. And that, you know, I think the, the central message of our, of what we do clinically is that exercise doesn't prevent heart disease. It doesn't make you immune. And so our job as, as cardiologists in this area is to work with people, try to kind of understand who they are, both as patients and as athletes, and to try to work through all these particular things that are both that happen to everybody and also that are unique to the endurance athlete population. So I actually want to start out with a little antidote here because you brought this up, the need to get this out to the medical community when they're dealing with athletes. And I remember very early on when I was writing for VeloNews, I think my second article ever for VeloNews was about stroke volume and how increasing stroke volume is one of the adaptations that you see in endurance athletes. And I had a reader write me actually a very angry email saying that I basically made up the whole article. So he was in his 80s. He talked with his cardiologist, showed the cardiologist the article, and and his doctor said, there is zero research on that, told him it was all made up, that that is not one of the adaptations, and particularly you don't see that as sort of adaptation in somebody his age. So he he was quite angry with me, and I, I wrote, I hope, a very nice email back but included (laughs) a Word document with about 70 references about stroke volume adaptation and highlighted one that said, I can't remember the exact title, but it was pretty close to stroke volume is still a major adaptation in endurance athletes, even in their Mm -hmm. eighties, something along those lines. So highlighted that and uh, he Got the email, sent me a very short note back saying, thank you for doing that. My cardiologist has some reading to do. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, should we dive in and let the experts tell us a little bit more about this this idea of cardiac remodeling? What is it for the layperson? Let's start there. And then we can get into more complex science as we go through the conversation. I'm not sure which of you would like to speak first, but take your pick. Absolutely. Well, I think our... our two goals here are to A, not make listeners upset uh, like that situation, and B, hopefully some of our research can shed light on some of these changes in athletes so it's more broadly known to the general public and people's physicians about how best to take care of all athletes and also those with heart disease. Um, so cardiac remodeling. So cardiac remodeling is a process by which your heart adapts to different pressure and volume loads that are incurred with high stress situations like exercise. So as you can imagine, if you were to go out on a century bike ride, your heart is going to have to work a lot harder than your friend who is eating chips on his couch. And over time, as your heart has to sustain high levels of fitness, it has to pump for high levels over long periods of time. In these situations, Your heart will adapt over time and there are key structural and functional changes that it goes through to help you maximize your performance. I think that's a great summary and I don't don't have a lot to add there. I think this is something that has been observed and studied for going now on over a century. And this is something that we're kind of progressively getting a better understanding of. And it's the way I think of it is the heart's adaptation to the sports-specific training and hemodynamic, so the sort of the loads that are placed on the heart and the way that it responds to those. Heart is a muscle, just like your biceps or your quads. And so if you work the muscle, it will grow, it will change, and it will adapt. So we're going to throw out a few terms here that we've we've never used on the show before. So get ready. 
we're going to nerd out a little bit. So we were just talking about exercise-induced cardiac remodeling or EICR. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a, a theory, and I've been excited about getting to this because I wish I had this last name. This is a cool last name. But there is a theory about how this occurs and the fact that the, the remodeling appears to be different in strength sports versus endurance sports. And this hypothesis is the Morgenroth hypothesis. That's not as exciting as I was expecting, Trevor. Well, I did give a bit of a build. It's still a cool name. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. So do you two want to tell us a little bit about what the, the theory or the belief is here? Yeah, Dr. Churchill, go for it. Yeah, so Morgan Roth hypothesis comes from a 1975 paper by Morgan Roth, obviously, where he he basically was the first person to posit and put down on paper the idea of the sports specificity to the training adaptation. And what that's really getting at is that as your heart sees different types of forces acting upon it in the context of different sports, it'll adapt in different ways. And so we often think about this in kind of paradigmatic sports. So things like weightlifting or alignment on a football team are a good example of someone, something which is a relatively a purely strength or purely kind of strength and burst activity. And the classification that we often use is dividing sports based on their static versus their dynamic components. So how much of it is an increase in, and the other sort of way to split the axes is how much of it is an increase in pressure versus how much is is it of an increase in the cardiac output or the amount of blood that your heart is pumping over time. And so on one end, you have the purely static sports. And those are, as I was saying, things like weightlifting or the lineman in football. The other would be something like, like a marathoner or a cross-country runner, which is a, we think of along the lines as a largely purely dynamic sport. And, and I'll, I'll caveat that all these divisions are simplistic and life is not so clean and so cut and dry. Right. And then there's the sports which kind of combine the two. And I think that for me, the best example of that is is rowing is is a really classic example of that because in a rower, and this has been studied, every stroke, obviously there's a a huge endurance component, but at the same time, every stroke at the catch of every stroke, at the beginning of every stroke, competitive high-end rowers will see a blood pressure that goes well north of 300 millimeters of mercury. So it's the heart is exposed to both high pressures and, and as well as the high cardiac output stimuli. And so these different stimuli tend on the whole to give different adaptation. And that's and so the typical paradigm is in this in the strength sports where we're seeing the primary stimulus is high pressure facing the heart. The heart adapts like again, like a weightlifter who's doing biceps curls or something, where the heart muscle thickens and the heart muscle and, and tends to actually grow on essentially sort of the, the chamber size on a relative basis grows inward. To reduce the wall stress, whereas by contrast, in the sports that have the high cardiac output stimuli, those in, in those cases, the heart cavity tends to get bigger. And then depending on the exact sport, sometimes the heart muscle will thicken in conjunction with that, or in some cases it will, the heart cavity will enlarge without muscle thickening. So that's the sort of basic breakdown of, of things that we see in on not always everything, you know, life is not quite so simple as a textbook, but that's the the overall schema that we that we use to describe the two different sort of axes of that. So, I mean, the, the very, very short version is um, dramatically oversimplifying is in people in, in more strength sports, you're going to see that thickening of the, the walls, but you're not going to see an increase of, of the ventricle chamber size. 
where in endurance athletes, you would expect to see that increase in the chamber size, but you wouldn't always see a thickening of the walls. That's, that's the very simplified version of the hypothesis. That's where it becomes important for uh, specialized centers for heart doctors that also take care of athletes because there's a lot of borderline cases and people who do sports that, that change both of those, that increase the wall thickness and increase the chamber size, or in people who are right on the borderline where other doctors may think they have actually a disease, but it's just their exercise affecting their heart. So that's why kind of taking a holistic approach to athletes as far as their clinical evaluation and research is so important. Now, something I wanted to bring up. Uh, so I did a little preparation for this episode and did read a, a very recent study called Aging Athletes Heart, an echocardiographic evaluation of competitive sprint versus endurance trained masters athletes. And they basically in this study challenged the Morgan Roth hypothesis and said they actually found quite different results that at least in these masters athletes, it was much more common in sprinters to see no cardiac remodeling. But they said in the endurance athletes, actually what they saw, the most common form of cardiac remodeling was actually a thickening of the walls. Yeah, that's a great point. I think I think that gets to a couple things here, which are the first is that these, as I, as I was saying before, life is more complicated than we painted these relatively simplistic descriptions. And there have been, I would say, the, the preponderance of studies over the years has supported these sports specificity of these training changes. And I think one thing that we often look at when we look at the study design is oftentimes giving a little more weight or credence to studies that follow particular individuals over time, as opposed to, I think, I believe this, in this case, this was kind of a snapshot cross-sectional one. So that's one point. And then I think the other, the other important, important point to take there is that all of these changes, and this is sort of one of the challenges of studying this in general, that all of these adaptations, all of these changes are really occurring in the context of everything else that's going on in these people's lives. So these, you know, these may be, we see this in where we have the 50-year-old, you know, the 60-year-old marathoner who's still putting in 70 miles a week, but maybe also maybe has uncontrolled blood pressure um, at the same time. And so it's the all of these changes are occurring in the in, in the context of any other, any other medical issues that might may be happening, which obviously become more prevalent in the as when we look at older older populations so it, it does become a little bit of a, a more confounded study you know I, I read that that paper with interest because I think it's an interesting and there are there have been you know, there are others over over time that I could point to that also sort of challenge this Morgan Roth hypothesis and challenge this this sort of this dominant paradigm but uh, you know on the whole I think this is this has been borne out by the majority of data and, and when things don't fit the bill, you know, it, it's important for us to say, okay, we should step back, reevaluate things. Does this change our overall picture? Is this kind of an exception to the rule or is it somewhere in between? And I think in my mind, this is something that is still hypothesis generating and that it's not, it, it makes it very clear. This is not, this is not a law. This is not F equals MA. This is not gravity. Um, and these are complex biologic systems. So I think there are sort of potential confounding things that were at play in this particular article that you mentioned. More importantly, we may need to recruit you to our team for bringing up studies that came out weeks ago. That's really impressive. <laughs> well, your study is actually listed as 2022, so it hasn't even come out yet. It's somehow I managed to read it. So yeah, I mean, it does look like there's been a lot of research in this recently because there was another one that I looked at also at 2021 
which was cardiac remodeling induced by exercise in, in male master's athletes. They had a, a fairly large study size, and their results bore out much more in line with the hypothesis. Yeah, no, I think it's, again, that it is a heterogeneous body of, of work in that, you know, these are all having done now, you know, some studies enrolling large collections of master's athletes in particular, that it's hard to really to sort of narrow in on on a, a very on sort of very strict criteria to try to get the, the group as sort of similar along the important axes as possible. And so there there are there is always going to be heterogeneity within groups and different pop, you know population in the US may have different genetic background than populations in in Europe, for instance, or in Africa. And I think and I think there are undoubtedly kind of important there's an important interplay between the host, the person, the training load, their genetics, and all the things which affect. This is not to say that without, if you put, you know, we're not lab mice. So, you know, if you put two people on the treadmill and make them do the exact same thing for 10 years, their hearts will probably look different. And that's just, that's the interplay between their own personal physiology and the, and their own genetics. So we'll get to potential health concerns in a minute. Before we get there, let's just talk about athletes, particularly endurance athletes, who have no confounding issues, um, no no cardiovascular issues, but they're seeing some of these adaptations in their heart. What impact does that have, both positive and negative? And we're trying to stick to performance now, but it's going to be right. tricky to not talk about health when it comes to performance, right? Right. I mean, do these adaptations improve performance or are they just... Uh... So I think the, the easiest way to think about that is oh, there's sort of a couple of things that are worth mentioning there. I think the first thing is to focus on what you were getting at in terms of stroke volume. And I think the corollary is, is cardiac output. And so ultimately cardiac output is your body's ability to fuel the working muscle. And so the heart rate for a given individual, more or less, depending on their age, their maximal heart rate absent there's ways we can we can give medicines that make it go down, but there's not much we can do to make someone's maximal heart rate go up. So cardiac output equals the heart rate times the stroke volume, and so the stroke volume part of that equation is the is the variable one. So that's that's the way to the stroke volume is the way that we can improve by increasing stroke volume. You can increase your cardiac output. Before we dive into the impact on stroke volume with Drs. Pettick and Churchill, let's take a step back and quickly hear from physiologist Jared Berg and his explanation of what stroke volume is and why it's important. Could you tell me you know, what is stroke volume and cardiac output and why is it so important to endurance athletes? Certainly, certainly can. And so, yeah, so stroke volume, basically it's, it's defining how much blood that we're able to to pump out with every every heartbeat. And so few things can really go into that specific uh, quality, I guess we would call that. But uh, what we're looking at is, you know, how much the ventricle, the, uh, the atrium can fill up with blood and how much that ventricle can, can sort of like preload. And then when uh, we're going to pump out that blood, it's just we want to be able to have, have that ventricle filled with more blood so it can pump more blood throughout that body and, uh, and get it to the, the muscle tissue and the, you know, where, where it's needed. And so, you know, stroke volume is basically simply defined as how much blood we can pump with every time we beat that heart. And so if that heart can, uh, pump more blood, it doesn't have to beat as much. 
And so it's basically more efficient at getting at getting uh, oxygen through the body without having to work as hard is sort of that stroke principle. No, I remember in my early exercise physiology classes, stroke volume was listed as one of the most important adaptations for endurance athletes. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree. It's certainly an important adaptation, but I think we need to take it within reason. Like some people worry like, oh yeah, my heart, my heart beats so much faster than my, my training buddies. Right. And that's, you know, simply a function of anatomy. People's hearts will sort of, you know, build. And as we grow and mature and get into, you know, to adolescence and to adulthood to a, to a certain size. And it's, you know, and ideally it's not going to, you know, it's going to, you know, stay at a healthy functional size for our specific anatomy. And so somebody who has a little bit smaller, smaller heart is just, it's just simply going to beat more off at like a higher cadence on a, on a, on a bike versus someone who's going to push the pedals a little bit harder where um, someone with a smaller heart is just, just going to pump a little bit higher cadence. And that's totally fine and totally healthy. All right. But as they, that person trains a little bit and they really, you know, get up that high volume of training and, you know, and works at all different, um, you know, trains all the different capacities, you know, whether it's slow endurance or, you know, threshold or VO2 max type work, all that is going to challenge the heart in unique ways and cause it to grow a little bit and increase the stroke volume. But each, each individual, individual athlete will have sort of a limitation with how much their stroke volume will increase. And that is totally fine. And it's that specific athlete's best way of getting blood, oxygen-rich blood to the rest of the body. So in that sense, the increases in the heart chamber size, we, we kind of focus on the left ventricle because that's what sends blood out to the rest of the heart, but this sort of plays out through the rest of the heart. So in, increase in chamber size allows a greater stroke volume. And then this is getting into the physiology of this a little bit, but allows a greater stroke volume at, a, at the same pressure inside the heart as well, which is important because it, that's sort of what people, if the pressures in the heart go up, that kind of can throw people off and make people feel poorly. So it allows a greater stroke volume and that's what gives you cardiac output. The other corollary part of that, which is kind of a less commonly talked about, but a vert part of the exercise-induced remodeling, but I think an important part of the endurance athlete phenotype is the, the way the heart relaxes and receives the blood. So we call that the diastolic function of the heart. And so we commonly will see that we have some metrics when we're looking at people's hearts to look at that. And we commonly will see supranormal diastolic function. So a supranormal ability to relax. And that makes, if you think about that through the same adaptive lens, that makes a lot of sense because the heart, you know, so the heart can only pump out so much as it fills in, so to speak. And so the, the heart's ability to pump out more requires the heart's ability to relax sufficiently in order to receive all the blood coming back to it. So that's another kind of cardinal feature of the endurance athlete phenotypic adaptation that we will see and look for. And that certainly, I think both of those would function together as an adaptive part in terms of supporting high levels of endurance activity. So you, as I remember, you mentioned this in your review as well, that this cardiac remodeling doesn't appear to affect function but it definitely has that, as you said, that impact on performance, that it, it's going to increase the, the capacity of the heart to deliver oxygen to the, the working muscles by, as you're saying, increasing that stroke volume. And, and, and when you say function there, I, I, I think you're, you're getting at the idea of that things like the ejection fraction or 
Yeah, so kind of the normal function of the heart. So if you're sitting there on the couch, these adaptations aren't going to hurt or help any sort of function there. But you would you would notice it in exercise. Yeah, I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair statement. And sometimes we can actually see at rest the same adaptation. So if someone has if someone's heart is adapted to to training and has enlarged such that the stroke volume is increased, we can actually see that when they're at rest, their heart doesn't necessarily need to eject a high percentage of the blood in the heart. So that's the most common metric that as a cardiologist will look at is what's called the ejection fraction, which is what percentage of the blood inside the heart can get squeezed out every beat. And so again, intuitively, if, you're, if your chamber size, if your heart gets bigger, the amount of blood that it needs to eject on every beat in order to satisfy the, beat, the body's sort of resting needs on a percentage basis can actually be lower. And that's something that that's sort of an, that's an observation that we've seen in, that, that can be seen in, in, in endurance athlete and in particular highly trained endurance athletes. And we actually, we showed this actually looking at a, a small group of professional runners over time. We actually showed that when carefully measured over time, as they started their professional running careers, that the ejection fraction at rest, as their heart got bigger, the ejection fraction went down incrementally and actually got to the, can go into the range that would be, that might be considered abnormal in many circumstances. And is there a concern with that? Again, this gets to the importance of everything being kind of understood and, and looked at in, in concert with each other. And so in this case, the ejection fraction is looking, appears low because the heart's adaptations are allowing it to, it's, it's still pumping the amount of blood that the body needs at sort of the resting state. It just happens that because the heart is bigger, the percentage that it's pumping out is smaller. The challenges of metrics, when, when you look at a percentage metric, obviously, if you change the denominator, then we're, you know, there's a chamber size in this case is the denominator. So uh, that's something that we think of as not an indicator of any pathology or any problems. It's, a, it's just a reflection of their heart's adapted state. And so that's, that's where, you know, when we, when we look at these people, at people in this case, and you're trying to evaluate is this at rest, I wouldn't call it a performance enhancement. It's just simply the, the way that your bot, your heart adapts to your body's needs at any given moment. So Dr. Pedic, if you wouldn't mind, could you give us that brief synopsis of the changes that are actually seen? Absolutely. So kind of overall as a 3000 foot view is, is that we see specific changes that happen in athletes to their heart over time, depending on what type of exercise you're doing. So in primarily strength or static exercises, like your weightlifters and your, your alignment in, the, in football, you generally see thicker hearts and it's generally an increased pressure load to the heart. In athletes such as cyclists who perform mostly endurance-based exercise or dynamic exercise, we generally see that the hearts get bigger and they dilate over time. And everything else in between just shows the importance of trying to study these different areas of these specific sports and also take all of these findings kind of in culmination. So we can treat each athlete as an individual and decide whether this would be normal or not for their body. And these specific adaptations allow people to perform at higher levels in their hearts to adapt over time. So... We've talked on the show before about 
the types of adaptations and how there are both structural changes and then there's biochemical changes. And I actually use stroke volume as an example because there's two ways to increase stroke volume. One is what you just talked about, which is a remodeling of the heart. Another way to change stroke volume is to simply increase blood volume, which your body can do very quickly. So everything we've been talking about is structural changes. So I was really interested in hearing from you how long do these adaptations take? Is this years to see this sort of changes in the heart or can they happen quicker than that? So it's a great question. And the short answer is that changes can happen quickly and can, but can continue to be seen over time. Sort of the best studied model of this is looking at people over a one to three month time frame. And certainly in the, in the three month we can see, time frame, we can see fairly significant changes in both increasing in wall thickness, increasing in chamber size. And we think a lot of that is, is thought to be mediated by the increase in plasma in plasma volume that can come certainly early in the training process. And you're, you're seeing this in people who are untrained and then they go on a regimen of some kind for one to three months and they're seeing these changes? Yeah, so you can see it in, in a whole wide range of people. So one of the sort of the paradigmatic studies that, that has been done kind of by one of the folks that we work with is, been looking at freshman athletes coming in nearby us at Harvard and, and then looking at them as they as they undertake their fall training season, their freshman year. And that's taking people who in the most cases are actually pretty well trained. These are elite high school rowers who are joining the crew team or you know not necessarily at quite as elite, but football players, et cetera. Um, and so taking people from a fairly high level of, of training, but regardless, it's still a substantial augmentation of the training volume. And we pretty consistently see adaptation in these structural and functional changes. Measuring plasma volume is something that can be done, but it's sort of a technically more complicated endeavor. So, but that, that's certainly an, an early change. When people look at the same individuals over over longer term, over the several year time frame, we can certainly see further changes. I will admit most of the studies are not, haven't been on a sort of six every six month basis for years and years, it's usually kind of a baseline six month or three three to six months, one year, and then three or four years. The exact tempo and the interceding time is a little hard to pin down, but there's definitely a continued progression of changes. I remember reading that, and uh, I was actually surprised that you could see some of that remodeling happen that quickly. And the same is true. I think Chris had asked about untrained people as well, and there there are studies where we take people who sign up for to do it to run a marathon on, under a charity fundraiser kind of thing and it's a good it's a good model where they they do a 12 week training program and we look at them before and after and see the magnitude and the exact sort of specifics of what we see in different cases varies but that the basic principle stands that we see both structural and functional as well as overall other metabolic changes in that case as well and, and sort of across different populations Hey, I'm Ryan Kohler, head coach and physiologist at Fast Talk Laboratories. And I'm Trevor Connor, CEO of Fast Talk Labs. Between the two of us, Ryan and I have over 40 years of coaching and clinical experience. From juniors to masters, national level athletes to club riders. Our team at Fast Talk Laboratories is pleased to offer new solutions and services. Now you can get the same guidance and testing available to athletes at national performance centers. No matter where you live or train, our virtual performance center can be your support network to get faster, to get answers, and to get more enjoyment from your sport. 
Schedule a free consult. We'll discuss your background and recommend a path forward. Book a coaching help session. We'll help you push your thinking and find new opportunities. We can troubleshoot challenges and find solutions. Even if you're working with a coach, we can help support you and your coach by bringing a neutral, science-based perspective to your training. Schedule inside testing you can do from anywhere in the world. We can reveal incredible insights into your personal physiology and strengths as an athlete, plus next steps to improve your performance. Prove your nutrition with a consultation tailored to your needs, or create a personal race day nutrition plan. We can even help you with workouts and skills. We offer in-person and virtual sessions to guide key workouts or improve technique. Fast Talk Laboratories is here for you, wherever you are. See how we can help at fasttalklabs.com solutions. So this then brings me to Dr. Pettick, your recent review. And as I said, the, the date on it is 2022 and we're in 2021. How so. did he do that? I, I don't know. <laughs> you'll you'll have to explain that to yeah, us. Yeah, he's uh, that good. Yeah. He's that good. Very good. Nice. Glad to have you on the show. And your review looked at you know obviously there's been a ton of research on producing these adaptations, but not as much on detraining. So you really dived into how quickly do these changes? Does this cardiac remodeling go back to normal after you start detraining? And I, I will. I'll let you take it, but I'll start by also pointing out there is that that fairly well-known study of Italian cyclists where they showed even after 13 years, you, you didn't see them fully return back to normal. Absolutely. So I think you hit the nail on the head. There's a huge disparity in the amount of research. There's hundreds to thousands of studies looking at what exercise does to the heart and in, in this remodeling pattern that we see. But we took a look back and we we said, you know, if an athlete gets injured, if they get sick, if they have a period of detraining or if they have a period of rest after their season, what does this do to the heart? Do you lose it as fast as you gain it? And what were the results of these studies? So we were only able to find find a few. Um, it was in the teens, the amount of studies that we could find. And most of the data had been built actually previously on astronauts and about patients who were at bed rest. And they found that if you were a normal, healthy person coming into the hospital and you got put on bed rest, your heart could regress in size in, in a matter of weeks. Um, so they found in about two weeks, your heart could thin, your chamber size could go down, and similar with astronauts who go to space. So the studies in athletes that have looked at this, the few that have looked at this, have found very similar findings to actually the astronauts and the patients who come in at bed rest, which is fascinating. So you can find changes, especially in the, the left side of the heart, you can find changes in the wall thickness and the chamber size of the heart in a period of about one to four weeks. So if you say, hey, I'm going to go train for the Boston Marathon, and I'm going to train for you know a couple months, and then I'm going to take a couple months off, you may have lost a significant amount of the cardiac adaptation in just a few weeks that you have gained. Yeah, that really shocked me when I read that in your study, to be able to lose, see that sort of atrophy in, in just a few weeks. I would not have guessed that until I read your study. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And it just shows that we all need to keep, uh, keep running and keep as active yeah. as possible, right? We need to stay on the bike. Well, it, it makes me correct something because that's something I, I talk to my athletes about. I have my athletes take a period off. I'll often have them cross-train, but I tell them a period of detraining in the off-season is important. And I unfortunately have always told them, you know, those structural changes are going to stick around. You're just going to see 
loss in the biochemical, and it sounds like I have been not quite accurate, not quite correct. And I think in your defense, I don't, I don't think we really know too. So for athletes who cross train in the off season, you probably get some effect to maintain your fitness by, by cross training as well. But the exact amount of exercise you should do in the exact amount of training to maintain the cardiac adaptation and the advantages you have are really unknown because this area has really not been looked at before in a rigorous fashion. Right. And so I think how my recommendation, it's actually not too far off of what I have my athletes do anyway, thankfully. But you know, based on your review, I think where my recommendations would go is you need that period. So if I'm, I'm tra- coaching a cyclist, I'm going to tell them you need that, that off season. I'd like to have you have a, a couple of weeks where you get off the bike, but I still want you doing some sort of endurance sport. I still want you having that specific stimuli on the heart so that you don't see this, this sort of detraining effect. Absolutely. And, and that's where it becomes really important to have people like yourself coaching um, athletes through this process as well, because you got to think about the other aspects too, their musculoskeletal systems, their pulmonary mm-hmm. systems, their psychological state. I mean, I think Dr. Churchill and myself are very focused on the little box in the center of your body, but the rest of it matters as well too. So trying to figure out and individualize it for each athlete, but as much as you can rest other parts of your body, but stay as active as possible. Um, and it becomes very important in the injury population too. So if you you know, are a cyclist and you fall and you break your collarbone and you know you have to stay off the bike for a while, what can you do to maintain your fitness and maintain your exercise? And that may be able to help maintain your cardiac adaptations that you've worked for long to build. I worked with Jared Berg for years as a head tester at CU Sports Medicine and Performance Center. He's very familiar with cardiac remodeling and athletes. And when I asked him about it, he addressed some of the concerns that he's seen. Let's hear from him now. I'm assuming as an exercise physiologist who's worked with a lot of athletes, you're familiar with this whole concept of cardiac remodeling where you see that, that increased size in the chamber of the left ventricle. Is that something that with the work you've done that you've seen it all? Is it something that you feel is important? What's been your experience with it or your understanding of it? I do feel that that's you know very important, like an anatomical adaptation that needs to be considered and and looked over and discussed with your doctor for sure. Uh, it's you know should we be doing regular check checkups and screens and everybody should you know I feel like everybody should have a good sort of EKG fingerprint so they know how their how their heart looks and uh, and such and you know just with a checkup and their physician. The idea that cardiac remodeling and that and the, and the ventricle walls can uh, sort of thicken and become larger. Yeah, that, that certainly can interfere with that natural communication of the heart, right? Where we're going to have, you know, chances for the, um, the ability to, for the heart to sort of get a little bit more out of rhythm, right? With that thickening of those heart walls. And so it's uh, certainly important to, to monitor, make sure that your heart is, you know, is beating at an appropriate, appropriate rate. It's not, um, we're not getting like sort of premature ventricular contractions, you know, which can, or sort of even like that, um, even with atria, we get some atrial fibrillation with an athlete adapted heart. And so those kind of things can just sort of lead to sort of maybe dysfunctional, dysfunctional stroke volume potentially, where we're just not getting all that blood out of the heart with every beat. 
some of this sort of sort of sticking in a little bit of um, pockets in the atrium, uh, especially with the atrial fibrillation. So yeah, so it's sort of a, and that can sort of you know when we don't get out that heart out of the all the blood out of the heart, we could have a little um, some potential for, I mean, basically blood clotting, you know, and so something something to be kind of concerned about. So there's lots of things to be worried about or to be thinking about with um, the sort of heart remodeling and. You just need to make sure that um, that we're never looking into it, and that we're you know seeing professionals, you know, um, your cardiologist and um, a physician and such, to make sure that our heart's still functioning as you know as healthily and um, keeping us in good uh, in good shape and such. Yeah. So I was going to ask you when you start seeing these concerns in an athlete who you're testing or working with, what do you do at that point? Do you just recommend they see a cardiologist, or are there things that you could do as a physiologist? Yeah, they would see a cardiologist. And ideally, a cardiologist that works with some exercise physiology um, testing that would be doing uh, your, um, you know, EKG testing, or you're also doing the uh, cardiac screening, right? The, you know, or uh, you know, any imaging that, that that particular cardiologist uses. So we we've skirted around it so far, but it's time to get into those health impacts of this remodeling. The research is saying, Dr. Pedic's review is looking at how quickly some of these things take place, how quickly some of these things go away, if you will. Dr. Churchill, what health impacts does that have on a person? So this is obviously, you know, for at least for us, is the million-dollar question in that this is an area where we see people coming in, doing the sports they love, and with either established or concerns for heart disease. And so I think that the, the starting point here is to really emphasize sort of how difficult it actually is to really parse out the effects. So you know, I think the things that we can say with certainty are we know that exercise is good. Exercise is good for the body, good for health, good for the heart. And we know that this remodeling is associated with exercise, but trying to parse out kind of specifically what does the remodeling part, what are the exact implications of the remodeling part for health becomes a lot harder in terms of establishing causality versus just an association. I mentioned this earlier, but the other key message obviously being that exercise alone doesn't make people, and these adaptations don't make people immune from heart disease, and that it can help, but doesn't necessarily overcome bad genetics. If blood pressure is not controlled, a poor diet, other things like smoke, you know, any other thing like that. So that's kind of the framework to start. And then I think that gets into the, the questions about how exercise, how EICR might relate to possible health effects. And I think for the most part, that's an open book. I think the the best established adverse health consequence of high volume of endurance exercise is one that Chris wrote a lot about is in, in atrial fibrillation. And there's a lot of theorizing about how the remodeling of the left atrium is likely an important part of the development of that condition. If you read a lot of papers in this, there's a lot of diagrams where people theorize the pathophysiology of how this comes about, but there's there's very little actual kind of concrete science saying it's one thing or the other. But I think that's that's the area where the direct implications of, of remodeling for health might be somewhat more concrete. I think the other area that's worth bringing up is the what I was mentioned before about the heart's ability to relax and to receive the blood. And because that's one of the cardinal features, if we sort of step away from the athletes and look at patients with with heart disease and with some forms of congestive heart failure, one of the cardinal features that there is a stiff heart that doesn't adapt, that doesn't 
relax well and doesn't receive the blood very very well or very smoothly. And so it's a very reasonable inference that the effect of exercise on the heart's ability to relax would likely make that type of developing the stiffer heart as you get older less likely. And we know that's an adverse health picture, health phenotype. That's a lot of conjecture, but I think that's one that's very plausible. And that's been shown that if you take a group of older, previously sedentary people and you train them for a year, you can make their hearts concretely less stiff. And we know that stiff hearts are generally not healthy hearts. So those are the areas that I would think that I would point to as the remodeling parts that have the most concrete implications for health. I think the parts about chamber size are a little more harder to pin down. And as as we've talked about, I think also the fact that they probably, there's probably a lot of undiagnosed coming and going of these over time also makes it a little more complicated to try to get at what they might mean for health itself. So in a lot of ways, I think they may be a bystander um, in that exercise as a manifestation of exercise and all of its benefits for health. But I think there are some concrete things, as I was mentioning. So something I wanted to ask you, because this was brought up in your review, I've read it a few other places, is if there is an association with future disease, what's bringing it about? So I, I have heard this theory that if the chamber size, so the dilation of the ventricle or, or the atrium gets too big and you don't have a thickening of the wall, it becomes actually hard for the muscle to actually continue to pump that giant chamber. And that could lead to health issues. But in your review, you brought up the conduction system a lot and actually mentions in studies where there were conduction issues in these athletes. And when they detrained and then retrained, they were able to essentially eliminate some of these issues. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, we are learning more and more as we go, but trying to figure out in in which, what sport and which heart conditions it is okay to keep training and what heart conditions maybe you should stop for a little bit. And there was one example of a group of athletes that had extra heartbeats called preventricular contractions. And a small study showed that if you detrained and took some time off and you went back to training, that you actually reduced the, the number of those. However, I think that the big thing to look at is how you feel and what are the, what are the downstream implications. So you may decrease the number of those heartbeats, but what we really care about in the medical world, and I think what most athletes care about is, is this going to affect me long-term? So is it going to be safe for my heart long-term? And how do I feel? So I think really in the future, that's what we need to focus on is in which specific patient populations would they benefit from taking a little time off and, and going back to training? And which populations is it okay for them to keep training and for them to keep doing what they love? I won't lie to you. When I was in my late 30s, I, I wore my PVCs with a badge of pride as a as a high-level cyclist. Now that I'm 50, I'm like, yeah, that was stupid. Yeah, yeah, the things we do. It sounds to me as if you both are saying there's a lot of unknowns, and I think that that's clear. But I was wondering if I could put you, not on the spot, but ask for your recommendations. If you're If you're talking with a lifelong athlete and he's listening to this episode and he's maybe debating, oh man, are they saying that I should throw in these periods of detraining or are they saying that detraining is bad? Do you have any recommendations as to what someone should do based on what we've talked about today in terms of remodeling? Absolutely. So I think the main thing is we know that exercise is good for your body. The more people exercise, 
and have regular exercise over longer periods of time, um, the better the health implications. And I think the real thing is listening to your body when you're exercising. As you're going out, if you're noticing that you're feeling unwell, if you're feeling new symptoms as chest pressure or lightheadedness, that's really when you should try to go to your doctor to get evaluated to see if something else is going on. But otherwise, I think the the important thing is just maintaining your fitness as long as you can, because as soon as people stop moving is when they get into issues in the long term. So exercise is a great thing when used right and listen to your body and make sure that you're you're telling people if you are having any changes. And, and the one thing I would add is I, I don't think the understanding, the literature and the understanding that we have about the chain, about the detraining effects on heart structure and function should be taken to suggest that people should never, should not build in rest, appropriate rest and or cross training into their training as Trevor was getting at. And that I think both of those are, can, are essential and that, that, you know, we all in clinic, you know, every couple, every month or couple of months, we see someone coming in with a clear overtraining syndrome. So the, the answer to the fact that detraining effects are seen on the heart is not to veer into overtraining. It's to sort of be thoughtful about it, to try to keep, to pay attention to your body, to work with a coach who sort of is attuned to what's going on with you and to try to, to balance things out over time. Uh, because I don't think the answer is just to say, okay, the answer is never to, you know, no rest days for the rest of your life, because I, that's also probably not the, the, the healthiest response there too. I'm going to tell you though, that is, I think, one of the most fascinating things about the heart. All the other muscles in our body, they repair, they adapt in a rested state. The heart never gets that luxury. It can't go, I'm going to stop beating for 10 hours and repair myself. It's incredible too when we have patients who come in and that have done, you know, a hundred Ironman races or a hundred marathons. It's pretty incredible, and they've never had a heart issue in their life that their hearts been pumping that well and and maintaining such a high level of fitness. And that's kind of what both of us love and what has drawn us to this profession and wanting to help athletes. You know, it's fascinating. It's a really exciting thing to look at. Doctors Pettick and Churchill talked about the importance of seeing your doctor if you're seeing strange signs because everyone is different. This was echoed in our conversation with coach and physiologist Julie Young, who has tested a lot of athletes and finds there's no true normal. Julie, as, as a coach, how familiar are you with what's called cardiac remodeling in, in endurance athletes? I mean, I know just from, from reading the science, just as, as athletes, you know, our heart muscle remodels and gains strength and gains muscle mass. So one other question here, because I know you've done a lot of uh, physiological testing on, on, on athletes, and I'm assuming you've done some testing on, on people who are not high-level athletes. Do you feel that when you're looking at test results, that the ranges, the expectations for saying they're, they're in normal ranges, they're in healthy ranges are going to be different for an athlete population versus a, a more normal population? And when you're saying that, Trevor, like what, what measurements are you thinking about? Like, are you thinking just heart rate measurements? Are you thinking lactate measurements? What are I would you say thinking? a bit of everything, particularly the oxygen consumption, the sort of results you'd see on a metabolic heart. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I've learned in in testing is that there's there's no normal, that there's there's such variability. And, you know, kind of off topic, but just in terms of the metabolic testing, like 
for sure, in, in, in my experience and opinion, there is no like, okay, at, you know, 65% of VO2 max, you're burning fats. Like that's something that I see. There's just so much variability. And I also, you know, like heart rate, I think people have a misconception that they have this sort of heart rate. It means that. And heart rate is so individual and it's, you know, it's really that range. So I think that's something that when people see like 220 minus your age can be very misleading. And generally, I think most of those generic formulas are almost more detrimental than helpful. So it's almost, instead of saying, here's a normal range for an athlete, here's a normal range for for a non-athletic population. There's just trying to have any sort of, quote, normal range can be a little counterproductive. In my opinion, it is. And I just, I think it's really misleading for individuals, at least those that have come into the lab, you know, and they're, they're maybe concerned that they have this sort of heart rate or their friend has that sort of heart rate. And, and again, just, I think helping educate people on, you know, the individuality of it and, and the variability of it. Okay. So I'm going to actually take us on a, a tangent here. So I, mean, I really enjoyed that conversation about the, the heart and cardiac remodeling. But as I was looking at your research, I noticed that both of you have done a whole lot of research on the impact of COVID on athletes. So when an athlete gets COVID, how that impacts their training, any sort of long-term effects, how they they should address their training while they're sick. It looked like really fascinating research. I'm sure we have at least a few listeners who would be very interested in hearing about this. Absolutely. So I think just as this whole pandemic has been a marathon for everyone, and we all hope that it it comes to an end sometime soon. It's also been a, a marathon on our end trying to figure out how we best protect athletes and what's safe to do and to try and maintain fitness. So I think originally when the pandemic first began, there were reports out of Europe that were very concerning. There were reports that patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19 infection, that there was potentially a high percentage of patients who had inflammation around the heart called myocarditis. Traditionally with athletes, we get really nervous whenever there's any uh, inflammation around the heart. It can happen from a variety of factors. It can happen from viruses. It can happen from other diseases. But in general, as us as cardiologists, if an athlete were to have myocarditis, we generally recommend that they don't train for three to six months because there's a risk that they could have a fatal heart arrhythmia. So I think we've been on a whirlwind down this roller coaster now because original data and hospitalized patients said there may be a high risk of myocarditis from COVID-19. So our real aim was to say, what is safe for athletes? Because we were seeing lots of different sporting organizations close their doors. We were seeing lots of different athletes completely stop training. And what can we do to best protect our athletes? So what we did as a group is we created a large consortium of primarily college-based athletes, and we had over 40 universities, over 3,000 athletes. And we looked at athletes who were screened for having a cardiac condition. Most of these athletes got a heart tracing. They got a, a special blood test that shows if there's damage to the heart called a troponin. And they either got an ultrasound of the heart called an echo or something called a cardiac MRI, which can look for inflammation around the heart. And I think reassuringly now from multiple different large-scale publications in college athletes, professional athletes, and in other athlete subgroups, we've shown that 
the rate of abnormal changes on your cardiac MRI to suggest inflammation around the heart is very low after COVID-19 infection. So this made us all feel better that hopefully we didn't need to screen every single athlete before exercise. And traditionally, what we had done is if athletes had symptoms suggestive of myocarditis, if they were having chest pain while exercising, if they were having new shortness of breath, and they had abnormal cardiac workup like heart tracing, then we would go down the pathway to check for it. However, in the pandemic, everyone was very nervous about our athletes, so they were testing almost everyone. And this comes back to the whole process, just like this remodeling where we were doing a lot of testing that has never really been done in baseline athletes doing these cardiac MRIs. And we don't have a lot of good data to drive us. So it was really important for us to really figure out what's going on to best protect athletes. But I think the punchlines for right now are that through multiple publications, we've shown that the rate of myocarditis is low in athletes. For athletes, there was also concern about long COVID. And we also showed that the rates of persistent symptoms in athletes over long periods of time is also low after getting COVID-19 infection. And finally, the big thing is, is listening to your body. And one of the, the really concerning symptoms that we found was on athletes who have chest pain when they return to exercise. So if you have COVID-19 virus and you, you take a rest period for one or two weeks and you have chest pain on return to exertion, that's really the subgroup that should go to their doctor for extra testing and make sure that they don't have inflammation around their heart and talk with their own doctors. But overall, we've painted a pretty good picture that hopefully the rates of this are low in athletes and people can continue to exercising. And once again, if you feel abnormal, make sure you reach out to your local physician. Great. Thank you. Well, guys, you're both new to the program, but we always like to close out an episode with one final question, which is taking all that we've discussed here today, what is the most important take-home message for listeners? Dr. Churchill, I'll start with you. That's a great question. I think the important take home for is that the heart adapts. The heart is a, is a really amazing organ, which adapts to the stresses and the, the loads that your body places upon it. And in general, I would say that adaptation can it has implications for performance, but is not sort of in and of itself the, the goal or the, the end, so to speak. This is an area of ongoing science. And, and I think the, the biggest thing is that, that I would stress to people is that this is an area where this is a specialty area within the field and that if people, if concerns come up, they should seek out to work with, in addition to their, their coach and their other and other people to work out with a physician who's attuned to these types of questions, these types of adaptations, these types of changes, and also to the, to also to the priorities of someone who places a really high premium on the role of exercise in their life. Great. Dr. Pedic, what would you add? It sounds like you need to get a great coach, uh, somebody who also reads papers and is up to date on things and can really coach you throughout the process and work on you, not only on your performance, your musculoskeletal health, but also listen to you and your concerns when you think something's abnormal so you can make sure you get checked out. I think the biggest thing is continuing to support, I think Dr. Churchill and I are both biased, but continuing to support research in, in the sciences and specifically in athletes, which was uh, traditionally an underrepresented population. Because just like the cardiac remodeling, we've we've come a long ways to figure out what's normal for athletes and what's healthy for athletes. When people previously may have been restricted from the, the thing they love that could actually help them when their changes were absolutely normal. And in the setting of COVID-19, the same thing. A lot of athletes were restricted from doing what they love every day. And I think emerging data has 
reassured us to help safely return them back to sport and what they want to do. And ultimately, that's what's going to affect their long-term health and definitely uh, psychological well-being. As uh, I don't think I could survive without running and cycling. So I know everyone else out there probably feels the same. A couple of things I would add. It's amazing, you know, the the stories that I started to hear once I knew a single person with a heart arrhythmia. They came out of the woodwork. They were everywhere. It's so it seemed. That being said, I think they're relatively rare. And, and I don't want to scare people with this conversation in any way. I think that what we're talking about are changes that are quote unquote normal for the most part for the demands that people are placing their hearts under. So it's not really something to be concerned about until it is. And Dr. Pedic mentioned, you know, the types of things you should be looking for that would be concerning and that you would want to see a physician about. I think the other thing I learned working with friends that have had heart arrhythmias is that I hate to say it, but not every physician really understands the athlete body. Trevor mentioned the 80-year-old who was seeing his cardiologist who was like, ah, that's, you know, that uh, that's not true. Is he saying that because of any other reason than he doesn't know the athlete body? I don't know. But in my experience, not every doctor understands what an athlete should look like, quote unquote, should look like, or the symptoms they might feel or the things that they might see as symptoms that aren't really symptoms, I guess you could say. So I would just make those two points. And then uh, Trevor, I, I'll, I'll leave it with you to give us the final word. I don't think I've ever closed out before. This is kind of no, exciting come on, for you, me. You must have. No, I think this is my first. <laughs> so we talk all the time on the show about training energy systems. And I have admitted that when we talk about energy systems, that's real shorthand for all the different adaptations that happen. And I have received multiple times emails from listeners saying, hey, can you quickly send me a summary of the energy systems you're talking about? And what I kind of want to answer is, can I send you a textbook? <laughs> it's <laughs> not, not a short answer. Yeah. And what I loved about today is we just talked about one of those adaptations and you just listen to two Harvard MDs who have studied this thoroughly say, man, this is complicated. We don't have all the answers. A lot of this is still up for debate. And it's just, for me, what I, what I love about physiology is just you can take any aspect of it and see how complex and amazing and robust it is. And you can spend a whole lifetime just studying that one thing. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Churchill, and thank you, Dr. Pedic, for joining us today on Fast Talk. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, guys. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Bradley Pettick, Dr. Timothy Churchill, Julie Young, Jared Berg, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.